Hi, I'm Nick Heidfeld, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Grid. My name's Tom Clarkson, and once again, I hope I find you safe and well during this period of COVID-19 crisis. I know life's difficult at the moment, but hopefully you're going to enjoy the next hour or so because we've got a really interesting conversation coming your way. My guest is a 13-time podium finisher in Formula One. In fact, it's crazy to think that this guy didn't win a race because his junior Formula credentials were exceptional. He was champion in Formula 3 and in Formula 3000, the series that back then resembled F2 today. He then graduated to Formula 1 in 2000 with the racing world at his feet. And he was regarded by many as Germany's next Schumi. Yet he never quite got the success he looked so on course for. Too often, he was in the right place at the wrong time. But there were still countless occasions when he was able to wow us with his speed and consistency. Hence the nickname, Quick Nick. I'm talking, of course, about Nick Heidfeld. I first met Nick at a rainy Silverstone in 1999. He was testing for McLaren at the time, and he was the bee's knees. He was the coming man. He was about to wrap up the F3000 title, and we were waiting to hear where he'd race the following season. Of course it would be Formula One, but with which team? He ended up at Prost Grand Prix just as the team was starting to unravel, and neither he nor teammate Jean Alesi scored a point. And I'm not sure that Nick's career ever recovered from that negative first impression. Still, he drove some great races over the next decade for the likes of Jordan, Williams and, of course, BMW Sauber. And he could easily have stood on top of the podium if the cards had fallen only slightly differently for him. As it is, he now has the unfortunate record of the most podium finishes in Formula One without a victory. But Nick never let his misfortune get him down. He kept everything in perspective and never more than now as he looks back on his career. Due to the COVID-19 lockdown, we had to record this remotely, Nick at home in Switzerland and me in the UK. So apologies if the audio is a little more shaky than usual. Nick was suffering from hay fever, but he was otherwise in great form. So listen out for some super interesting opinions on everyone from Lewis Hamilton to Mark Webber to Fernando Alonso and Robert Kubica. Oh, and there are some lovely stories about growing up around Michael Schumacher's kart track as well. Nick, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. I hope you're okay in this quarantine period. Yeah, all, all going quite well. Obviously, the kids did have some homeschooling that went better than expected. And we are quite lucky with the weather. But obviously, as everybody around the world, looking forward and hoping that this crisis will, will end soon. Sometimes it's a bit surreal because personally, I don't know anybody who has really been affected heavily. Uh, by the virus and we're living here on the countryside and weather is nice and so it's, it's it's very strange it is very strange it's also quite strange to think it has been what nine years since you retired from formula one yeah it's crazy i mean time time is flying i've been uh, busy afterwards with doing other high series but yes time is flying now a lot of our listeners will remember you as quick nick can you just tell us the story behind how that nickname came around. Yeah, one of my best friends, uh, actually, uh, I still know him from when we went to school together. His name is Chris. And we were in at the Nürburgring at a Formula 3 race. And I don't know if we were fighting for the championship. Anyway, he uh, designed the banner and put the name 
quick nick on it and then the press just uh, took it up and then it stayed. It certainly did. It stayed throughout your career. Actually, it's interesting you mentioned Formula 3 because I wanted to look at some of the pivotal moments during your career and getting picked up by McLaren Mercedes when you were in Formula 3 has to be one of those moments, doesn't it? Can you remember when the deal was signed and did you always believe that you were going to go on and race for McLaren? Well, I don't know exactly that moment when I got that call. For me personally, a big step was already getting into Formula 3 because back then, probably even more than nowadays, I thought that when you or if you make it to Formula 3 and are successful there, then you might make your hobby into your life, into your job and uh, earn money with what you love. And so the step into Formula 3 was, was huge for me. And I think that it was quite important the first year I finished third in the championship. Next year I won it. But I think what got the attention of many people was Macau, a big race, which is like the world championship of Formula 3. And I was on pole position there my first year and won the first uh, first heat. And I think that got the attention of, of quite a few people. And then uh, I think it was Norbert Haug first who uh, we had contact with. And actually then in 99 I drove Le Mans for Mercedes. And also got the test drive with, with McLaren, which obviously was a huge step. It was fantastic. And I think I learned loads in, in Formula 3, but then obviously also testing Formula 1, uh, which still for me until now is the best team I've, I've ever worked with, especially in that time where they were winning championships with, with Hakin. It was really amazing. McLaren, amazing, yeah. Can you remember that first test? Was it at Silverstone? Yeah, at Silverstone. I remember very well just driving out of the, the pits, uh, and pushing the pit lane speed limiter button and then having full power and was just uh, extraordinary. I mean, I drove Formula 3 before, so it was a big jump from like 220 horsepower to, I don't know, maybe 700 and something. What was even more impressive, uh, deceleration. Uh, I remember going down Hunger Strait and uh, then I think it's Stowe. The first couple of laps, I didn't need to to really brake, just downshifting was enough because the uh, deceleration from the engine brake and also the, the downforce was so extreme, uh, which was difficult to imagine coming from Formula 3. And there were a couple of laps, actually, I would say some of the first three or four laps where my, my mind, my brain, the capacity of uh, going through things uh, was a bit behind the car. So I knew the car could do it. So I went through the corner, but not really feeding the car. And uh, that took a couple of laps. So that was an amazing moment and a moment I, I will never forget. Did you do much testing alongside Hakkinen or Coulthard? Uh, not a huge amount. Most of the testing I did back then was called Talent 2000 testing. And I tested the narrow car with the groove tires, uh, which then came the following year, probably in 2000. Or... I think it was 98, actually. I think that... I think that the, the... It was 1998, so it must have been quite early on. Yeah, so probably it was 98, uh, that testing. Yeah, so most of the testing we did by ourselves in, in Silverstone doing, doing tire testing. There was just uh, a handful of tests I did together with them. I remember one was at Monza, where actually I was the only car with uh, the narrow car and those goof tires. And Mika had an accident in Monza testing. And then I had to jump from the test team in this car into the uh, real McLaren car and that was a very nice experience and till this day the best car I ever drove it was so much fun 
to drive. It was so predictable. It did what you wanted it to do, and yeah, it was amazing. Yeah. Whereas the narrow track groove tied car was what unstable or well, every other car I drove in my life was worse than that car. <laughs> <I drove>. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, but of course, compared to the groove tires, there was a huge difference. Something still to this day, uh, I think, was not the right decision to do because the idea was to slow down the cars for safety. But actually, where we did slow down the cars with those groove tires was in the slow corners because that was where the tires played a bigger role. In the high-speed corners, where we still had huge downforce, uh, speed difference was similar. So then if you would spin at high speed, having less grip from the tires, it would actually make it more dangerous and not less. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Well, talking of perhaps cars that weren't great, you made, you made your debut with Prost back in 2000. On paper, two legends. Your team boss was Alain Prost, your teammate was Jean Alesi, but it wasn't a great car, was it, really? No, it was obviously it was the worst car I had in Formula 1 in my career. We finished last in the championship, uh, no disrespect to Minardi, but in those days they were usually last in the championship and we were behind them. So, yeah, that was that was really tough, especially, as you said, the previous year, um, after the previous year, the expectation was relatively high for the team to do well, but we went nowhere. What was Alan like as a as a team principal? I think it was not, not easy for him. I mean, being a great racing driver doesn't mean that you're a great team boss. And it was also all pretty new to him. So he definitely tried his best. But I mean, the results show that he didn't do a fantastic job. Uh, I like him. We had a good time. But on the other hand, it was the most frustrating, frustrating year I had in Formula 1. Not mainly because of the results, but because of what happened during the year. We spoke a lot, we analyzed a lot, we came up with many ideas, I wanted to change things, but then nothing happened. And that was tough. I mean, if you're behind, okay, you try to work and go forward, but that with nothing changing over the years, that was really, really hard. It's interesting, isn't it, that how different that experience was to McLaren, where you'd been testing. Yeah, I think that was probably the biggest difference you can have going from the World Championship team, obviously only uh, as a test driver to post and of course you don't expect to find the same there but um, at McLaren the changes we had if somebody had an idea came to so quickly to the next test and then of course nothing happening at all as a result and what about Jean Alesi then how was it working with Jean uh, he was a, a, a lovely guy but as I'm sure I'm not the first one to say that he's different outside the car than inside the car because inside the car, sometimes he can be a bit mad, but outside he's the most nice person you can imagine. He's a lovely man. But okay, okay. So, so on that theme, talk me through the Austrian Grand Prix. Yeah, I already <laughs> thought about that because that was for me one of the most stupid things he did when we were together. Not that I didn't do any, because I crashed into him in, in Manicur afterwards, which was totally my mistake. But uh, what people probably don't know in, in Austria, he had already stopped. So he already had did his pit stop. Um, or how was no, I still had to stop. So I was, I was far ahead him, uh, in, in the race and he had the order from the team not to pass me for us to have a better shot at once in a while, have a good result. So I didn't expect him to go for it. And from a team's perspective, it was stupid, but he did and we crashed out. So that was, yeah, that was one of those moments where you think, why did he do that? But uh, then, as I just said, another moment was in Manicur, I think a few weeks later, 
I mis misjudged my braking, wanted to overtake one car, overshot, and uh, crashed into, into Jean, who was two cars ahead of me. And it was 100% my mistake. And it was at his home race in, in France. So he could easily have killed me there in, in the media. And she just was the most lovely and nice person. So oh, that's that nice. Also the two yeah. sides of him in, in, in the car. Well, look, so you extract yourself from Prost at the end of 2000. And then it seems to me that 2001 was a pivotal year for you at Sauber. New team new teammate in Kimi Raikkonen. You outscored him 12 points to three during the year, yet he still got that call to McLaren at the end of the year and you didn't. How quick was Kimi and did you feel let down by McLaren? Uh, no, I didn't feel let down because, I mean, obviously they did a good choice in Kimi. He became world champion later on. He was a great driver, but I did hope, obviously, that they would take me as the uh, I was still a junior driver for McLaren. I think I did everything I could, everything they asked for. As you said, uh, I beat him both in qualifying as, as in racing, even though it was his first year and it was it was my second. And uh, back back then, actually, as most of the time during my career, I thought to myself, it doesn't matter. I still have time. I will I will get to a good team and I will fight for the world championship. It didn't always happen afterwards, but while I was disappointed, for me, was not like the biggest drama in the world. That's really interesting. Positive mindset. And speaking about uh, Kimi, what impressed me the most about him was his uh, race pace. For me, he wasn't the best qualifier. Uh, he was obviously obviously good. But from very early on, even early in the season, after he just jumped from what was probably Formula Renault straight to Formula 1, he was on it straight away in, in racing, really pushing always on it and I think also in his statistics, you can see that he was also always good in, in the races and many quickest laps and obviously got world champion eventually. What was the relationship like with him? Because you're two young guys, both got a lot to prove still. Was it very tense or, I mean, Kimmy, everyone says is so laid back that it's, it's hard to have a sort of niggle with him. But I mean, how was it between the two of you? No, it was totally opposite, I would say. It was not tense at all. We had lots of fun. We had quite a lot of PR stuff to do, actually, back then with Petronas in Malaysia, for example. And um, you can have lots of fun fun with him. And uh, he was, as you can imagine, always straight, straightforward. And um, yes, he can be laid back, and he's called the Iceman, but he is still motivated, uh, or at least back then. You know, he wanted to be world champion. He was pushing hard. Uh, also on the physical side, he was working out very hard. And uh, some things people say about him, in my experience, are true, but but others are, are not at all. I mean, you don't become world champion just by being a, a lazy idiot and not caring at all. I mean, when when he got beaten, he, he didn't like it, of course. He didn't say, I don't care. Are you surprised that he's still going? No, not really, no. I mean, he still enjoys it. So why not, if he has a chance, do it. What about you, Nick? If you got the call next week to test an F1 car at Silverstone, are you in good shape? I mean, you've got hay fever at the minute. We, we can tell that from your voice. But are you still in shape? How quickly would you be able to get back up to speed, do you think? Difficult to say. I mean, I'm 42 years old now. Uh, I think it wouldn't take me long to get to, to good speed. How close to maximum, I don't know. But uh, if I'm honest, I, I think I, I would get there. But... Uh, 
you would have to to prove it. Um, I think it would be tough for my neck muscles, obviously, because I don't work out particularly on, on my neck muscles because at the moment I'm not driving anything. And what I drove last time was Formula E, which is massively slower than, than Formula 1. Well, look, let's talk about some of your other teammates because you had some phenomenal guys alongside you. We've, we've talked about Jean a bit. We've talked about Kimi. Kimi then goes to McLaren at the end of 2001. And Felipe Massa comes in as your teammate in 2002. You beat him over the course of the season again. How quick was Massa? I think he was not naturally as talented as, as Kimi was. But he was also very quick on, on occasions. I think with him, it was a bit of a more of a learning curve. Whereas Kimi was there straight away from race one. It took Felipe a bit longer to improve to a very good level. And... I would say out of all my teammates in Formula One, he was the guy I, I liked most. I mean, again, it's not a secret. He's such a lovely guy and uh, he has a big heart and yes, great person. Great family as well, isn't it? Yeah. So look, okay, then what about Mark Webber? Mark Webber, teammate with him at Williams in 2005. He's a, a fierce competitor, is Mark, isn't he? Yes, he is. And he was the teammate that, in my view, and also if you look at the numbers, was by far the best in, in qualifying. I think afterwards, when he went against Vettel, and maybe also with a blown diffuser, he struggled a little bit. But before that, he was known as a qualifying monster, similar to Jarno uh, Trolli. So, yeah, he gave me a really, really tough time in, in qualifying. In, in racing, I think it was... It was okay. I was I was better, but in qualifying, I, I really struggled. Interesting. I remember he had um, a few choice words after the Monaco Grand Prix that year. Do you remember? <laughs> so he thought the team had favoured you in the strategy, didn't he? And therefore, you came second and him third. Or I think that was it. Yes, I mean they gave me the better strategy for the pit stop call. There are various stories going around why that happened. I won't go into into detail. But um, I think in the end, if you look at the race, it was not a bad decision because I came up behind Alonso, did one of the overtaking maneuvers I'm most proud of in Formula 1. If you look it up on YouTube, it's just fun fun to watch. Coming into the chicane, wasn't it? Brilliant. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I overtook him clean and then finished second. Yeah. This is a good point. No one does that to Alonso. What the hell was going on? <laughs> well, in the, his defence, his tyres were completely ruined. He was just so much slower but still it was difficult to overtake it he was and is isn't he a, a phenomenal competitor i wonder if he'll be back next year be interesting to see won't it yeah this is for me definitely the guy i would like to, to see most back into football but when he stopped when he quit or maybe as you say he, can, uh, he will come back i was i thought damn i would like to see him race because he's for sure one of the best yeah. He was world champion, but uh, he would have deserved, deserved to be world champion more times. Nick, while we're talking about 2005, do you remember his race at Imola that year with Schumacher on his gearbox for the last 20 laps or whatever it was? Yeah. Did not put a foot wrong anywhere, did he? It was vintage Alonso, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah it's, it's fantastic to watch him. I mean, as extreme as he was sometimes out of the car, some stories you hear, what he did in the team, how he played certain things, which in the end probably were also not always to his own benefit. I did love to race against him. It was probably the driver I did enjoy most racing on the circuit because he was always fair. Well, always, most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> 
I remember one occasion at Monaco where uh, he hit me in two loops, but I had my rain ties not on temperature and I was just like a, how do you say in English, like a sitting duck. So he had to try something and I sort of accept, accept that. But uh, on all the other occasions, he was always very tough, but always fair. It was very nice to, to race him, yes. So look, what about Robert Kubica? You were a teammate with him a long time. And then actually after his accident, of course, at the beginning of 2011, you ended up replacing him at Renault. So you're a bit of crisscross there. How do you reflect on your time with Robert? He was the teammate I had the uh, longest in Formula 1 for nearly three seasons. And I would say that he was the most complete of all the teammates I had. He was not as quick as uh, Kimi was in the racing and he was not as quick as Weber was in qualifying. Obviously, that's my personal view. Um, but overall, as a whole package, he, he was really up there. And if I think about what I did, didn't like about him or maybe what was also for himself uh, something not really helpful, is that he most of the time thought that the team was benefiting me over him because it was a German team with BMW, I was a German driver. And I didn't like it because he did put that out in the press quite often and I think it was simply not true. So always saying yes, uh, the team prefers me over him and I get better, whatever. And that was not, not true. Did you ever confront him about that and say, Robert, why are you saying these things? No, I don't think so. <laughs> just what, not worth the hassle, just move on, do your own thing. Was that your attitude? Yeah, that was definitely my attitude, but I don't remember if I told him. I might have, but it was not so important even now. I don't think he would have changed. He's a hero in Poland, isn't he? So, I mean, he, you know, even with Williams when he came last year, you know, there was the, the Polish well, he contingent. Well, to, to, to come back after that accident. Uh, even if his performance was not what most of us would have liked, including himself, to come back after that, not only physically, but also mentally, is, is amazing. Yeah. yeah, heroic. Well, what about Vettel? After Robert had his accident at Montreal in 2007, he then was stood down by the doctors for the US Grand Prix the next weekend. And you had a very young Sebastian Vettel as your teammate. I mean... It's a bit unfair to judge Sebastian on that one race, but what are your memories of having him as your teammate? Well, first of all, I also like him a lot as a person. You can have lots of, of fun with him. Uh, honestly, I underrated him back then. I never would have thought that he would become a multiple uh, world world champion. And this is not only basing it on this one race, because I did. I think he did, did well there. He scored some points. He did not beat me in qualifying and race but as you said it was just one race you cannot you cannot really compare like that but what I saw that race weekend I thought he did very well in the end uh, I remember very well if you just look at qualifying it was just one corner that he didn't find a good line where I gave him a few tens and on the rest we were more or less the same at this on his very first race and said in the race he didn't put a foot wrong it was more basing it on all of the tests he did because he did a lot of testing for, for BMW. He did a lot of Friday sessions as well. And yes, obviously he, he did okay, but uh, I think the fact that BMW didn't put, put him in the car also shows that they were not 100% convinced because they really gave him a lot of testing and everybody liked him. And I think the mindset was rather to somehow try to get him in the car, but the results were not quite good enough. That's really interesting. 
Just out of interest, which corner at Indianapolis was he struggling with in quali? It was uh, turn two, uh, the first corner of the chicane, the left-hander, where you did have to use the curb a huge amount, and he didn't do that. I think that was the only place where he was losing time. So what, you had to be quite aggressive? It was a flat curb. You just had to use it, and it didn't... Yeah, it was not aggressive, but mm. yeah, I don't know why he why he didn't didn't get that. But this is definitely experience. As I said, that was race one next year. For sure, he would have done it differently. Nick, do you still see Sebastian? I mean, you're both in Switzerland. Do you ever get the families together? No, I haven't seen him in a, in a while. Occasionally, we've been uh, on contact uh, via phone, text, but that's also been, been a while now. What do you make of his? I don't want to call it troubles at Ferrari, but I mean, since Leclerc arrived, it's been harder for him, certainly, hasn't it? Yes, but um, I mean, Leclerc obviously is a fantastic driver. And I never, since Leclerc arrived, said that, said or thought that Vettel didn't do a good job. I think it's just of one of those occasions when a young, young kid comes in who nobody has high on their lists yet. And then beats uh, the world, world champion. Therefore, uh, thinks that Vettel isn't a good driver. But maybe in a few years' time, everybody says, "Okay, look at Leclerc. He's maybe then also a world champion or has beaten every teammate he, he drove against." Then you can put it back in, in into a different relation again, a different perspective. So I think this is the main thing that probably people didn't have Leclerc as high on on their list as they might have in the future. Do you think Seb can bounce back? Do you think if we get going in this 2020 season, we'll see a more competitive Vettel than we did last year? I think the most important thing for him would be to do less mistakes in, in races. As that has been his biggest downside over some of the last couple of years, something he didn't show that much in his World Championship years, but spinning, crashing. I think he lost too many points there. On, on pure pace, um, I would say that Leclerc will probably improve a little more than Vettel, just by the simple fact that he's still young and, and learning a lot. But I think they're pretty even. If you look at their quality pace, Sepp had some issues beginning to mid of last year, but I think he got on top of them and then they were very evenly matched. It was not like Leclerc was beating him all the time. In the races, actually, Vettel, in my view, rather had the upper hand. Interesting. So look, going back to your career, who was the best driver you raced in Formula One? Not just teammates, but the best driver you you raced? I would say the most complete was uh, Alonso, yes, as I said, said earlier. Probably the most talented is uh, Hammond, but the best overall in my eye was, was Alonso. There was one year where uh, I didn't race and watched in Monaco. And uh, was lucky enough to get very close to the circuit, even closer than you would get as a normal spectator, which is already fantastic there. And those two drivers for me stood out just visually, coming through the, the corners, the car control they showed. And uh, Hammond was even more extreme, extreme with how much risk he took and how close he went to the barriers and, and to the walls. But it was far more inconsistent to what Alonso did. And uh, meanwhile, I think this is changed. I think Hamilton has become more consistent and he's not going quite as aggressive and dangerously anymore if you look at Monaco. Where were you watching? I was standing uh, in a few corners. The most impressive was uh, in the swimming pool, Chicane. 
Yeah, you can really use those curbs. I imagine from what you're saying, Hamilton was really hammering those curbs, right? Yes, I mean, they, they boasted, but it was not only the curbs, it was more what happened afterwards when the car came sideways and the wall approached or hitting the apex really close to the wall was, was uh, nice to watch. I'm interested that you haven't mentioned Michael Schumacher. Well, I think in the beginning of my career, uh, when he was winning world championships, uh, I never was in a car where I could fight him. He was rather lapping me, so difficult to judge. I mean, obviously, uh, being seven times world champion, and uh, I remember when I was at Formula 3000, again, Monaco. Of course, this is just where you see drivers being close to the limit and seeing their talent. I was watching from a, from a bridge, the two corners before the tunnel, and for me, out of all the drivers there, he was the most outstanding. People always talked a lot about his fitness capacities, his engineering capacities, blah, blah, blah. His pure driving was just phenomenal. But again, as I just said, when I was in Formula One, I didn't often have the chance to really raise him. Was he friendly? Was he supportive of you when you came in? Yes, uh, this is not the same as Jean Alesi, but I would say also for him, he's completely different on circuit, ruthless, extreme, aggressive sometimes not fair, that he is uh, out of the car. He's the most lovely person you can meet. He's got such a warm heart. He cares so much about his family and just such a lovely person, whereas on the circuit he did some things where I just said, stupid, this is not, not acceptable. What was it like then to be a German driver in the Schumacher era? Was all the focus on him and the rest of you got slightly overlooked or did you all benefit from Michael's fame and popularity? I think a bit of both. Obviously, he opened uh, the door for many of the other German F1 drivers coming in, including myself. But then obviously most of the attention was on him, but it was uh, each other F1 driver's job to make sure you do a good job and then hopefully get there as well. So I don't see it as a negative at, at all. And speaking about if he was supportive, I would say he, he always was uh, to a certain extent to what he could do if he was asked about me or other German race drivers, I, I guess. And this probably also because um, I know him from back when I did karting because he was at Cap Mannheim, uh, obviously living more or less on the circuit. And uh, I was already karting when he was not even in single seaters. So we knew each other from back then. Obviously, he's a few years older, so it was not like we were the biggest buddies, but we knew each other. Did you ever race him in karts, or was the age gap just too big? Age gap was too big. But already back then, watching him karting, especially in Kerpen on his home circuit, was fantastic. What was the social life in, on the kart track? Did you, I don't know, hanging out at the, the hot dog van or something? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, actually, his, his mother did run the restaurant, and it was uh, definitely one of the best times of, of my life, because karting is so pure and so much fun. Uh, but also, in Kerpen, they had a very good, I don't know how to call it in, in English, like a youth club, where um, the kids would meet up on the weekends, parents would go home, and you would just spend one or two nights there camping or being in a tent and having fun together, going on the BMX circuit uh, with the bike or with, even with a motorbike. You would go in your go-kart and maybe do the circuits the wrong way around. We even uh, went with, I don't know, 10, 15 kids for karting uh, to a swimming pool. You know, it was fantastic social life. At night, we watched some movies which were probably not appropriate for our age, 
where sometimes actually I was afraid and I was sitting there with my eyes closed so that the others wouldn't see it. And I think some of the others did as well. But, and, and Michael would be just one of the guys hanging out. Uh, no, he was, the age gap was, was too big. He was around sometimes, uh, but obviously he wouldn't be camping there because he would be up in, in his house because he lived there. He was around, but he was, uh, the age gap was too big to do the same stuff that we did. And what about Mönchengladbach, where you grew up? Because it's extraordinary to think that you and Heinz Harold Frentzen were teammates at Sauber in 2003, having both come from the same town. Uh, what is it? Population, I don't know, 300,000, something like that? Yeah, it's uh, between three and 400,000. What are the chances? <laughs> well, and even Cap Mannheim uh, with Michael and Ralf is just half an hour away. And there are many other racing drivers coming from this region. And surely it must have to do with the uh, card circuit there. And there's another cutting circuit in Niederkrüchten, so there are two circuits uh, nearby. And what about you and Heinz Harold? Did I mean you knew Michael obviously from karting? Did you know the Frentzen family? Did the Heidfelds know the Frentzens just from hanging out in in the same town? We knew each other, but again, the uh, age difference was was too big. And also in karting, I knew less about him than about uh, Michael. So um, yes, obviously coming from the same. Same city, one knows each other, but uh, it was not like the families were really, really close. Just a couple more teams that we haven't really discussed yet to do with your career. First of all, um, you leave Sauber at the end of 2003 and you go to Jordan uh, 2004. The car wasn't great, had barely been, I think, developed from the previous year, so I read. And some people have told me that that might have been your best season in Formula One, 2004. You got a couple of points finishes in a poor car. How do you remember? How do you reflect on that season? I think it was a very important year. I don't think it was my best year. I think it was in 2007 with BMW Sauber. Um, and I think I only scored points on one occasion in, in Monaco because the car wouldn't just do it. And but calendar, was, I think. Okay, you know better than me. Far be it for me to correct you, Nick. <laughs> But I mean, it wasn't a great car, though, was it? So we we can agree on that. <laughs> yeah, but it was a very important year because after I wasn't with Sauber anymore, it was like the only chance I had. It was close for me to being out of Formula One. So um, it was obvious that it wouldn't be a great year with Jordan, but I just wanted to show what I could do. And uh, then afterwards, uh, I, I was able to go to Williams. It was worth going to, to Jordan. Uh, just just be there and show what you can do. And the contrast, I would imagine, between Peter Sauber and Eddie Jordan was quite extreme. Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest difference in characters you can have in, in Formula One. And I would say that Peter was a little more trustworthy, but also sometimes a bit more dry than, than Eddie. I mean, obviously, there was quite a lot of fun fun with, with Eddie. I remember being on a boat with, with him, and I don't know if he was there as well. There were a couple of people journalists and I don't know if he had a little drum on the boat or if he just prepared uh, one for him by himself and then being under under a tunnel in the boat and just, just singing and playing the drums and just crazy. Did that kind of atmosphere bring out the best in you? Did it make any difference to you what the atmosphere in the team was like? Having a slightly mad extrovert as your team principal, did that did that help or hinder you? Or make no difference? Make no difference. I think in hindsight, 
the only thing that really got to me in terms of reaching my full capacity was when I felt the team was not backing me 100%. Uh, and that didn't happen often, but when that happened, that really got to me. Otherwise, it, it didn't really matter what other people said, what the media said, what other drivers said, whoever. But if it was team internal, that hindered me a little bit to really focus on the job. Now, is that a reference to Jordan in particular, or can you think of other instances in other teams? I think it only happened twice. It was once with uh, Paul Compuy in my last year with Lotus as well. How early on in the season with Lotus was that? Because, I mean, you, you got that amazing podium. Do you remember? Malaysia. Yeah, in Malaysia. There was, there was a nice race. I think the only one where was this, that golden overall, which luckily I still have here at home. Um, I don't really remember how early was it. I think it sort of slowly started to, to come in. Obviously, they signed me up because they believed in me. But then after a few races, that started to, to fade away. And uh, that led me uh, to one or two mistakes here or there, which um, I'm obviously not very proud of. But now in hindsight, I would know how to, to handle that better. Okay, well, what about Williams? I mean, we've discussed Weber, but just the team itself. What were Frank Williams and Patrick Head like to drive for? That was clearly the team where I felt, especially with uh, with the two persons you've just mentioned, that were the most uh, sort of race guys. Uh, and that really created a fantastic atmosphere and was huge fun. Unfortunately, it was not the best of seasons uh, they and we had at Williams, but you really felt that, that they love what they do and racing is, is in, in their blood. Uh, if I think back of that time, because yesterday when we spoke, you said we would also speak about Frank. It was his birthday yesterday, so happy birthday. I thought about how tough it was to get this drive. Because it was after my journey, I was Pete Sonia and myself having like a shootout before the season started. People don't believe it, but actually neither of us knew who would get the seat uh, until shortly before the season started. And actually, at the uh, sorry again for my, my English, um, at the announcement and of the when when they showed the car for the first time with all the media there, the press, it was only there that we were told if we would drive or not. And five minutes later. We sat on stage and had to <laughs> had to say, yes, here I am. And the owner had to sit there and say, yes, I'm happy. I will be reserved driver. <laughs> Crazy. Frank loved a good shootout, though, didn't he? He did the same with Jensen Button and, 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 and I'm having a mental blank, um, for 2000. And uh, I think Jensen was only announced five minutes before again. Um, did you feel it was disrespectful in any way towards you that you were having to go through a shootout? No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I didn't mind it much because I believed in, in myself. But again, you cannot be sure. Uh, if you look back at that time, there were many people saying that it was only already fixed that Pizzonia would, would get the, the drive. And it was just a marketing thing to, to get me in and uh, then afterwards say, no, we will not take it. I was afraid of that. But then the better I got to know the team, as I just said, I felt that they are two racers and they would not really care about much else. If they would think somebody is a better choice, they would take him. But there's, uh, there's one, one story where we did the shootout. I was in Jerez, one of my first tests for, for Williams. 
being in the in the in the truck where we had our little room, and I heard Pizzonia on the other side, but we were split by a, by a wall, so he didn't know I was there. And I heard him, I heard him talking to the physio, and I put my <laughs> my ear against the wall and heard how he already discussed with the physio that uh, he would give him a small percentage or a bonus when he would get points and podiums and so on. So again, that for me was like, oh shit, he already knows that he has the drive. And I, I just was on the other side of the wall thinking, no, no, not with me, <laughs> wait. So that was a bit of a crazy moment and uh, motivated me even more. Wow. I've just remembered it was Bruno Junquiera, by the way, who was in the shootout with Jensen. But that's, um, yeah, that's very tense, isn't it? Yeah, it was tough because, because actually before the season started, it felt like we already had a season behind us because it was mentally really, really tough. So I, I arrived in Australia already feeling quite tired. Did you enjoy those 2005 cars? The last year of the V10, so much power. Always find the end of a sort of technical regulation era. The cars are, are, are just so brilliant, aren't they? Did you enjoy those cars? Were they the best cars you drove? Not so much because in the end you always put it into relation to the other cars around you, to the other teams and to where, where you finish. And obviously with Williams having been a team that won many world championships and then in the end just getting a couple of podiums, it's, it's not what you, what you hope for. So you don't look at the car as if nobody else would be there and say, well, this is great to drive. You look at the results and then you say, shit. Where was the car lacking? Because, I mean, you got that pole at the Nürburgring. You, as you say, the, 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 the podiums were there. You know, okay, so Alonso wins the championship in the Renault. Where was that car better than yours? Well, it was a huge difference. There was no way with this car that you could fight for the world championship. Uh, one thing I remember as it was yesterday was when we had the rollout with the car, the very first test in Valencia it was. And after the first couple of laps, I think there were some other teams there as well, not really being on the pace. The balance, not really good car, far too oversteering. And most importantly, then the numbers showing that we were lacking rear downfalls, like, I don't know, 15 points or something, quite, quite a big amount. And then people thinking and hoping we could do it with a quick fix. And there was just one small thing that we didn't think of and you would have to change to, to make the car and the rear wing work. And unfortunately, I think they were looking for this magic, for this one little thing that went wrong for too long. Whereas I think it was just not working. I mean, we never got it to, to work. We never saw the numbers on the rear car that we saw in the winter. What about the relationship between Williams and BMW? Was it very tense? Could you feel that as a driver? No, this is something that was it is a bit strange because I saw much more of that in the media than I felt it in the team. And I saw more in the media about that even later on after they split than when being in the team. Now, look, it ended badly for you because you missed the last five races due to injury. Must have been very frustrating. Yeah, obviously, one of the worst times I had in Formula 1 missing the last four or five races because of a bicycle accident. Yes, but at least I already knew that I would be back in the following year with, uh, with, with, with BMW Sauber. But yeah, I would have loved to end the season with Williams, of course. Mm. Okay, so the Williams-BMW partnership didn't bring the results you wanted. Why do you think the BMW Sauber operation ultimately missed as well? I think one of the biggest... The facts was that they just pulled out too early 
too early in my view from a racing driver. Of course, in the view of the team and BMW as a whole, looking at the financial crisis that we had back then, probably was the right decision. I don't know. But if you look at their results, I think they did really, really well coming with a relatively small team with Sauber, uh, moving up up the, the ladder, getting good and better results. And then we had a bit of a, a hit and didn't climb the ladder. But I think that's also not normal. This is not to come from the back and you go fifth, fourth, third, second, and then you become world champion. Uh, it's, it's normal that sometimes that's, that's a setback. And then they just pulled the plug, I think, too early. And of course, there are things that could have been done better, but you can say that with, with any team. It's a bit like the grass is always greener on the other side. If you change teams, you find some things better, others, others worse. So. Kubica said once that he thought the team took its foot off the gas after he won in Canada 2008 when he thinks they should have pressed on because he thought the championship might have been on that season. Do you agree with that? Partly. Uh, I don't think they took the foot off the gas, not at all, but they also didn't put it down. So they didn't uh, go mad, as you see with some other teams, when they see they have the chance to fight for the world championship. World championship. They just put everything in. That didn't happen at BMW. But uh, to be fair, I also don't think that there was a chance if you look at the performance that year, even though that he won the championship and was in, in the front, uh, sorry, even though he won in Canada and he was in front also in, in the championship, the pure pace of the car wasn't as strong as, as some of the other cars. But obviously as a race driver, you are there, you see a small chance and you would hope that the team goes, goes all in and they did. Did the team have everything it needed in Hinville from a factory point of view? Or in hindsight, do you think BMW would have been better off either trying to buy Williams or maybe go at it alone like Toyota did? No, I think the connection they they had with Sauber worked really well. I think all the tools they have in Hidwell were all, also there. I don't think it would have been better with, with Williams. I think there was much more of a, a problem between the two parties than there was at, at Sauber. I believe that sometimes they were probably, as you always see and hear with big companies, a bit too, too corporate. You quite often have the small racing team being really quick in their decision-making. And then you have the corporate big brand like Toyota or Mercedes, BMW, whoever in Formula 1, who come in with a much different approach. And to get the both, best of both worlds together, this is a difficult thing. And this is something I believe they were still working on and uh, didn't have to, to full potential yet. Interesting. Now, there's one, um, talking of corporate, there was one show car run that I wanted to ask you about because I think it was 2007 that you got to drive a few laps of the Nordschleifer, Nürburgring Nordschleifer, in that Formula One car. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what was it like? Was it scary? How hard were you pushing? It was fantastic. It was an amazing experience. Even after having been in Formula 1 for so many years, this is one moment that, that stands out. And I thought beforehand that the circuit, the old Nordschleifer, would not suit a modern Formula 1 car. But it was not true. It, it suited the car perfectly. The only place or places where I was a little worried was where sometimes you see GT cars lifting off. So arriving there in a Formula 1 car with, I don't know, more than 300 kph, 
even though having a lot of downforce, that's the places where I lifted because I was afraid and I just didn't want to land in the, in the trees and never come back. But um, on all the other places, I pushed to a certain extent, but I only had three laps. We were only doing uh, three laps. And unfortunately, we had travel tires. We didn't have proper race tires on. So, but still, it was was amazing. Can you imagine a quali lap around there? <laughs> well, <laughs> two stories from, from back then that I remember. I think the whole team before it thought it was a great idea, good marketing thing, good fun. And the closer the event got, the more frequently I got called by Mario Tyson. <laughs> Like three weeks ago, it's the uh, way it started, all two, three days. And in the end, he called me like every day and, and told me not to be crazy and stupid and don't chance the car. And, you know, so that was that was quite quite extreme. How well did you know the track, Nick? Because, I mean, what is it, 175 corners? <laughs> I didn't count there. <laughs> but again, you're probably right. It's the most difficult circuit I know. I knew it best from uh, from the computer game, from, G- uh, from the GT game on, on the playstation how many uh, hours <laughs> did you put in i can only i can't imagine well i played it quite a lot but as i think i was being competitive i tried to go for the best lap time or the best uh, time i could could do and in this game i don't know if you get kicked out anyway most of the time after half the lap i went offline a little bit somewhere lost a few tents and then i started again <laughs> so i always missed the last part of, of the circuit but uh, additional to that, uh, I was allowed to do some laps in the Formula BMW car. Uh, but this really didn't help at all. I don't know, it has maybe like 140 horsepower. and yeah. Did your respect for the guys back in the day go up as a result of, of lapping that circuit? No, because it was already huge before. Right, yeah. Did you talk to Nicky Lauder and people like that? Get any advice? No, I never spoke to him about, about that. No. Incredible. One other thing is that I just learned after, after uh, that, which I sort of did push for, but never got a positive response. But after that BMW pulled out, I heard that they really thought about going to the Nordschleife with an F1 car and go for the lap record. So this one has been a dream come true, but unfortunately it didn't happen. And then Porsche did it later. They did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And you would have put your name down to do that had BMW gone. 100%. (laughs) You didn't scare yourself in the car and go, do you know what? Uh, Robert can do that. (laughs) Oh, Nick, it's wonderful to talk to you. Um, So, goodness, you then, uh, what is it? End of 2009, BMW pull out. I guess that was a stressful moment in terms of job security for you. Did you... You know, did you know what was happening in, in 2010? I mean, how different was the Sauber you raced for in 2010 compared to the Sauber that had BMW? Well, it was totally different. And in the end, the only time I really raced for a works team was BMW, and you can really feel it. With BMW, there was one year, 2008, that we spoke about earlier, where Kubica won in, in Canada, where the car was pretty poor in the beginning in testing. And only a works team can turn things around and make the car then competitive. And this is then obviously something that was lost uh, again afterwards. It was a completely different game that we were playing. Well, almost what you start the season with is what you end the season with. Yeah, it's more like that. It's, it's like impossible to turn things around. I've never seen it at any team that isn't the works team. Now, interestingly, you were 
also at that period, the Pirelli test driver. I just wanted to ask you about the tyres back then. So Pirelli are about to come into Formula One. What were those initial compounds like? Much, much weaker than what I knew from Michelin at, at Bridgestone. But I think given the time they had and given the task they have and had, they, they did a good job. When you say much weaker, whereabouts were they weaker? Was it a consistency thing? Yeah, the biggest difference was the uh, degradation of the tyres. Over one lap, it wouldn't be bad, but then they would degrade massively. And this is something they, they had to improve. They did improve and got to a, a level that was good enough if you're uh, the sole supplier of a championship. I think with that level back then, I don't know the tyres now, if they would compete, they wouldn't have had a chance. But then again, maybe they would have come in differently if they would have been competing. So the eve of the 2013 season, Nick, how close did you get to racing for Mercedes in 2013 before Hamilton was signed? Because I remember well, reading a few stories that you were very much in the running. Did it get close? Yeah, it was close. It was like, if Michael doesn't come, I, I will be in. I, I was at Osborne's house. We discussed it, but he told me straight, fair and square, that if Michael comes back, which back then was not clear because of some things I don't know that are, we can talk about officially, um, yeah, then, I, then I would be likely in the car. Okay, so sorry, so this is for 2010. Yeah, sorry, that was 2010. Oh, okay, because the story I read is that you almost got the drive in 13 instead of Hamilton, but it was well, it was to go to Mercedes no, in 10. Okay, I nearly teamed up with with uh, with Hamilton once. I think you can speak to Martin Whitmarsh about that. He spoke about that sometimes already officially, but again, it didn't happen. Wait, what year are we talking? Sorry, I don't, I don't remember exactly. Again, that might have been for, could that have been for 2010 as well instead of Jensen, Jensen Button? Yes, exactly. It was before that. It was before the Mercedes thing came along. But yeah, the, prob the problem then was that, that Michael, Michael came, came back. But in hindsight, the one unlucky moment, but this, I don't have any issues with it at all because it's just something that you know in hindsight is that uh, when I didn't sign with Honda, that became, became born. There would have been a chance to go there, and then obviously they, they won the championship. Hang on, so that was you had the opportunity of signing for them in two thousand nine. We were close. We were talking, but uh, BMW had the option on me, but they were playing a little bit, and so I was looking around, and yeah, we were talking, and I think there was a very good chance. But I tell you that in the winter when. It, Came official that uh, Honda pulled out. I said, "Thank God, thank God, I didn't go there." And then a few weeks later, when testing started with Braun, and they were top of the list everywhere, it was like, "Ooh, not sure. Maybe I should have signed." But we all thought, "Okay, they're just showing off. They're looking for sponsors." And then race one, two, three, and so on. They were just winning it, so it was a bit of a roller coaster. Were you were you at that Barcelona test when Braun rolled it out for the first time? Yeah, we all couldn't believe it. We thought they're running underweight and so on. It was an extraordinary. It was a fairy tale, wasn't it? Goodness me! So you you got close to driving that car. You got close to driving for the McLaren in 2010. You got close to driving for Mercedes in 2010. How frustrating. It's tough, but you always, or at least I try to pinch myself sometimes. Of course, I think I should have done better. I would have loved to drive for a team that can fight for the World Championship. But then you speak to other racing drivers that have been very close, that are also very good, and they never even got the chance to be in Formula 1. So I try to put it a bit into perspective. 
I mean, you have that record of, what is it, the most podiums without a win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as you say, at least you got to stand on, a, on the podium. I don't really see it like 13 that. 13 times. I, I would have... I wanted to win races and not only races, I wanted to win world championships. Of course, it's very difficult, but I won like every championship I did before Formula One in, in single seaters. Obviously, it is not Formula One, but you come in and this is your target. So I'm not happy with what I achieved. If you had your career again, Nick, I mean, hindsight is always twenty twenty, isn't it? But if you had your career again, is there one thing that you would have changed, the ramifications of which might have led you down a different path to race wins and championships, which you deserve. Yes, and this is not speaking about signing for Honda or Born, because this is really, as we just said, hindsight. But on the approach side, I would have probably looked and focused more on beating my teammate, because there were occasions, for example, where on a single race weekend, I thought I was ahead of my teammate, uh, was... That was like uh, clear, but the overall performance of the car uh, was not good enough to score a decent result, either no points or just one or two points. And then I said, I don't care if I'm quicker than my teammate. I just want to move forward and get some points or more points. And then, for example, went down a different route with some setup stuff and then went in the wrong direction and actually in the end was, was slower both for qualifying and race. I said, I take, a, I take a bit more extreme and dangerous strategies that might not work out, but instead of them being 11th, I could finish 6th or something like that. So this is an approach which maybe in hindsight was not right because people always look first at how you compare to your teammate. And even though most of the time I did well against my teammates, that would have looked better. Be a bit more selfish, is that what you're saying? Uh, on other occasions, yes, but... Uh, this is exactly what we just spoke about is not selfish because or it is not not being selfish because I wanted to get the best result for myself and for the team and I didn't just want to be in front of my teammate there were other occasions where I think I could have been more selfish or in other words be more against my teammate be more rude and unfair that could have helped but now Hindsight, I'm happy that I didn't do because I can look at myself in the mirror and I'm very happy with how I behaved in most of the situations where I could have probably been more of an asshole. <laughs> Beautifully put. Um, just bring us up to the present, Nick. What are you working on? There's some electric hypercar, is that right? Is that what you're working on now? Yeah, it's part of what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, it's called, the car's called Batista. And you probably know the company, it's uh, Automobili Pinin Farina. Of course, yeah. And um, it's, it's a project that I'm very passionate about, uh, mainly because I remember very well when I was a young kid, I already loved cars and collected like this model cars, 1 to 18 scale. And very often on the sides, they have the name Pinin Farina written on it. And now many years later, being part of that company, it's just like a dream cup too. Again, it's something... That I think to myself, you have to pinch yourself. Okay, now it's like normal, but imagine 30 years ago, somebody would have told me, okay, in 30 years' time, you will be with that company developing their very first own car. It's like a dream come true. And also, in terms of development and, and power, it is crazy. It is fully electric and it's going to have nearly 2,000 horsepower. <laughs> 
Well, it's got to it's got to accelerate quicker than than any F1 car. Well, have you driven this thing yet? No, not not yet. Just in the simulator. But uh, I mean, with the crisis now, everything is probably pushed a bit bit backwards. But hopefully, yeah, you were going to launch it at the Geneva Motor Show, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, we've launched it all, already, um, but we haven't really uh, taken it up in terms of power to the full full level. Two thousand horsepower. I mean, yeah, one thousand nine hundred something. I mean, you know, the Gerhard Burgers of this world will tell you, oh, the turbo cars of the mid-80s, that was only 1,500 horsepower, Gerhard, you know. <laughs> but there's no turbo leg, so it's going to be much yeah, easier true, to do that. True. Wow, that sounds like an amazing project. When is the actual car going to be ready? Uh, the initial plan was that the first ones would be delivered end of 2020. But again, with the crisis now, I don't know if it's going to be pushed, pushed backwards. And, and what about your children? Are, are you karting with them? I mean... Obviously not now during the lockdown, but any of your three children showing an interest? To... Uh, we've been karting occasionally, but only rental carts. We don't own our own car and they, they enjoy it. But so far, I don't see the passion where they say that that is what I want to do. It is like at that moment when they do it, they're like, yeah, I love it. I want to be a race driver. And then over the next couple of days, they forget about it again. So I try to support them with whatever they do. But racing is the only thing where I'm not free in my mind. This is really difficult because I know how tough it can be, how difficult it can be to really make it. On the other side, it's my passion. It's what I love. It's what I enjoyed doing during my life. So everything else I do is like, yeah, do it. I support you. But with this, it's like, ah, yes, of course, I support you. But you, you know, you've, you've been there. So you know everything. Yeah. Well, Nick, good luck with the hypercar stay safe and well during these times of the coronavirus and thank you very very much for your time really good to catch up and hopefully see you at a racetrack soon yes i haven't been in a long time but i, I need to come again hope to see you there have a good time as well stay stay healthy thank you great stuff thanks nick see you thank you i don't know about you but i took so much away from that conversation Nick's opinions were sound and some of his conclusions might have been surprising to some of you. Mark Webber, his fastest teammate over one lap, not Kimi Raikkonen or Robert Kubica. His insights into other drivers such as Alonso and Vettel were also fascinating, as were his thoughts on BMW. Thanks Nick for your time, it was great to catch up. Well that's it for another episode, but before we go, I just wanted to thank you for your feedback about our episode with John Barnard last week. We were overwhelmed by your response. In fact, our virtual post bag was overflowing and we're delighted that so many of you enjoyed it. He was, it has to be said, extremely candid and interesting. I loved listening to the latest F1 Beyond the Grid with John Barnard, said Damian McKinley on Twitter. I was working on my own car while listening and found myself continually stopping to focus on the stories. I especially liked how the semi-automatic gearbox was a solution to packaging rather than performance. Well, thanks for getting in touch, Damien. I'm glad you enjoyed the show, and I hope you were able to complete the work on your own car a bit later. Now, a Tomsky bomb, meanwhile, said, Definitely my favourite episode of F1 Beyond the Grid. Drivers take the credit for putting their lives on the line, but to hear a techie speaking with so much passion about their field is truly inspiring. I completely agree with you, Atomsky Bomb, and I love bringing you insight from every area of Formula One. In fact, we've got some more super interesting guests coming up from different fields within the sport. So please keep your comments and questions coming, and I'll read out another couple after next week's show. 
If you want to drop me a message, as always, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. That's it for now. As ever, thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, stay safe, keep washing those hands, and keep it flat out. Listener.